0: Our Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us in Christ, and we know that you have brought us together because we share together a common bond in uh, your Son. You have spoken to us by the prophets and the apostles, and we yearn, Lord, to be better readers of your Bible, and we know, Lord, that we have much to learn from this great big tradition of uh, the Christian interpretive history. So, Lord, bless our time tonight. I pray that you'll give clarity. There's a lot that we have to, to discuss tonight, and, and there's always a danger of, of it getting really foggy and muddy. And I ask that in your mercy, you would open our minds and our hearts to understand some of the things that are going on tonight and being talked about. And if any of that happens, we'll be quick to give you the praise and the glory. In the, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. It's still a little buzzy, a good little reverb. We've got two seats right up here. Yeah. Come <laughs> on. Um. So I'm curious, how many of you are Adventers, and then how how many of you are not? Well, to the, to the, to those of you who are, welcome. To those of you who are not, uh, welcome as well. Um, i I'm, I'm I've been giving a lot of thought to these lectures for some time now. And, um, and have a bit of trepidation, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, this is stepping out of an area. I don't, I don't teach church history. Um, I'm kind of a, a boring Bible word guy at the end of the day. Um, so to, to get into a field that's not quite my own, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about that. But um, I hope what we will be able to do together over the next uh, three weeks is to at least begin to dip our toe into a really big well, a really big pool. Um, my my own dean at Beeson Divinity School apparently is well known for beginning his church history classes. This is Timothy George. He begins his church history classes by telling people, my goal for teaching you church history is for you to realize that your grandmother wasn't the first person to believe in Jesus. (laughs) Uh, There's a a long tradition that's going on before this. And, uh, And if you think about this, um, I, I, I'm in the Protestant tradition, I, I'd imagine most of you are, Though we may have some uh, Roman Catholics here tonight. Gil, I don't even know if I need a mic. Yes, I do. Oh, okay, I take that back. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but I, 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 I firmly locate myself within the Protestant theological tradition, and we make a distinction within the Protestant tradition between scripture and tradition, the, the, both of them are very important. Um, And and there's a lot lot of debate on this in the Reformation period, but Scripture um, and tradition both are necessary the one to the other. I think that's important to say, but not in a uh, bilateral relationship. That is, Scripture is the norming norm within the life of the church. It is, to put it in other terms, the speaking voice of God to the life of the church. And tradition is the hearing ear. And tradition sometimes, many times, hears it very well. And it would, it would be good for us in the life of the church to take time to listen to the way in which the Spirit of God has spoken in the history of the church through the, the prophets and the apostles. Now, we also would be quick to say that there are times when the tradition gets it wrong. The hearing ear can go off. And that's where the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, continues to pressure and communicate his own self-giving presence in the life of the church. And so both of those are very important matters. Yes, tradition can hear it well. Tradition doesn't always hear it well. The ongoing life of Bible study is important in the life of the church. And all of these things come together to press us this evening um, to wrestle with over the next tonight in the next three weeks, to wrestle with how the church actually went about this. Now, there's a danger in this. Uh, What we have going on, I think there's some chairs over here if you all are looking. What we have uh, going on for the next four weeks is really, uh, let's put it this way, we're we're going on a picture gallery tour. So we're going into a big museum. I don't know if you've been to the Louvre or maybe the, the National Museum in London or something like that. We're going into one of these big museums to walk through the corridors and to look at individual paintings. Like tonight, we're going to look at the early church. Um, and, and you think about it, If you, for those of you who have gone to these galleries, you know, multiple galleries given to the Renaissance period, to the Impressionist period, to the post-Impressionist, I mean, multiple galleries, lots of paintings, lots of artists. And the danger in the kind of tour that we're doing is we're looking at one or two paintings in a really big gallery. And, and that means that we could really do this lecture series every year for the next 20 years, and still have a lot of work to do. Um, so I, I hope that gives you a sense of the scope of the of what we're doing, because in engaging the way in which the history of the church has read the Bible, what we're really doing at the end of the day is engaging Christian theology from the beginning till now. And, and for those of you who have a sense of this, that's a lot of material, a lot. So we're just dipping into this. Now, the way I wanted to sort of reach into this tonight is to talk a little bit about a few matters and these are in your introduction. How about handouts? How are we doing on these? Um, Maybe we can sort of spread some around. You all are without them? If we can share, I don't know, folks back here. I'll I'll do better next time Um, or there might not be as many of you next time. We'll know know what happened. (laughs) That's okay. You're absolved. Um, But let's look at these quotes at the beginning of of your handout. I have three quotes before we get in. The first one is a Bible quote from the Apostle Paul. For whatever was written in former days, that is the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'll read that one more time. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. What is it that the Apostle Paul is saying here? He says it here. He says it in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof. The Bible's inspired. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I hand over to you that which I first received, that Christ died, that he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures. So if Paul were to come into the room tonight and we were to ask him, Paul, give us a little bit of your own bibliology. Give us a little bit of your own doctrine of the Bible. Paul would be very quick to give you a robust understanding of the nature of the Bible as a document that's alive and well in the church. It's not an inert document locked in the past of ancient Near Eastern Israel or the Greco-Roman period if we move that into the New Testament. The Bible is not an ancient document to be dusted off. It is a document that is alive that in it is well and that it continues to communicate God's own presence to us by the promised spirit in Christ. That is significant. That which was written in the former days was written for our instruction for you and for me. That's important because that's going to start to get us into the hermeneutical, that's a big word. My dad always makes fun of me about this word, um, into the interpretive. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation. Into the interpretive mindset, into the interpretive heart of the early church. So we'll put that on one in one particular silo. The second quote here. I think the background music, by the way, adds a little bit to the... <laughs> To the evening, so. Uh, This comes from uh, Brian Daly. And and Brian Daly, uh, maybe one of the best patristic scholars around today. I have a colleague at Beeson Divinity School who did his PhD under Brian Daly at Notre Dame. Um, Anything you can get from Brian Daly is worth, worth reading, especially on early church exegesis. Listen to this quote from Daly. And when he says modern historical criticism, let's put in there in brackets... Oh, for lack of a better term, CNN Christianity or Barnes & Noble Christianity. All right, we'll put it there. Right? Or Fox News, whatever one you want, right? As a result, modern historical criticism, including the criticism of biblical text, is, and I would love you to underscore this, methodologically atheistic. Even if what it studies is some, for some, excuse me, there, uh, a, a facet of religious belief, and even if it is practiced by, and this is where he's going after the jugular, even when it's practiced by believers. So what we're doing really over these next three weeks is trying to situate. The interpretive instincts of the church in this broad stream of the interpretive tradition in a kind of critical conversation with modern interpretive instincts. So to do that, I wanted to do something a little bit on the board. I hope you all can see it over there. Um, it's, it's not going to be profound. So if you don't, it's fine. Um, so I'm going to draw a line here. Uh, this is the whole history of the Western world. There it is. <laughs> And if I draw this line, and I'll put this around, let's say, 1600 A.D. So around 1600 A.D., we move into a period that's known, and some of you are much better on these history of ideas than I am, so you may contribute later to the discussion. But we move into the period of the Enlightenment. Uh, Who are some of these figures? Uh, René Descartes, um, Baruch Spinoza, who, to my mind, Baruch Spinoza, the great Jewish Um, philosopher who lived in Amsterdam, had the most profound impact on the history of ideas in the continent of Europe during the 1600s and into the 1700s, and we still feel it to this day. Spinoza has a huge impact. Uh, John Locke, and the list goes on and on. Immanuel Kant, what is enlightenment? Enlightenment is the dare to reason. We'll turn back to that in a second. So this has often been seen as a dividing line in time between the critical tradition And the pre-critical tradition. Let's think about who are some of the figures that we would put in the pre-critical tradition. By the way, uh, three of them would be figures that we're going to be dealing with over the next four weeks. right? Uh, So so who are some names? You yell them out to me. I'm going to talk about theologians here. Quinas. I'll put him here. Someone said Augustine or Augustine. Either one's fine. Irenaeus, we'll talk about him tonight. Great dog name, by the way, if you're looking for one. Um, uh, Any other names? Uh, Did someone say Anselm? Anselm, Luther, Calvin, the list goes on and on. But the significance of these figures over against what comes after the Enlightenment is what I would like to talk about just for a few minutes. Now, what I don't like about this, to go ahead and just put it out on the table, I don't like this particular nomenclature, pre-critical and critical, because what it makes it sound like, I was talking with a colleague about this today, whenever we use terms like pre, it tends to come across to us as uh, naive. right? In other words, uh, in the critical period, there's a certain kind of maturity of thought that comes along that wasn't there before. And that's what I, I find a little bit troubling. You'd be surprised at the kinds of problems, quote unquote, that some of these early figures wrestled with, with the Bible. In other words, it did not take modernity, the period of the Enlightenment, for the problems of the Bible to surface. Augustine, we're not going to talk all about this tonight, but Augustine in the city of God wrestles with Genesis 9. I mean, What does it mean that you have angels coming down like that? Or Genesis 6, angels coming down uh, and, and having relationships with women. I mean, this, he's wrestling with that. Or you turn to someone like Calvin, and Calvin says, I'm not sure really who wrote the book of Joshua. I don't think Joshua did. A kind of critical investigation of the text that's surprising, given Calvin's temporal placement in the history of ideas. All to say, it did not take modernity for problems, quote-unquote, to be seen in the Bible. So how would I prefer describing the divide that we have here? I prefer describing it as modern and then pre-modern. And then you ask the question, because the question is being begged, isn't it? Then you ask the question, well then, what exactly is the distinction? What happens in this very critical moment within the history of ideas to change things when it comes to our interpretation of the Bible? I think this is what happens. And I'm not a enlightenment scholar by any stretch of the imagination but you remember this maybe from philosophy 101 about rene descartes talks about sitting in a stove heated room in germany willing to call into question all that he had learned from the aristotelian tradition that he was taught and he said i have to build my foundation of knowledge from something how do i know anything and then he goes on to say i'm even willing to call into question the fact that the real experiences that i am having are even real that they correspond to reality. That's kind of the crazy stuff that made you avoid philosophy in college, right? In other words, how do I know that right now is not a dream? That we're not dreaming right now, and that when I'm sleeping, that's the real world. How do I know that? And Descartes willing to say, I don't know. Maybe this is a dream. And then he goes on to give an an illustration of this by using the experience of being near fire. How, How do you and I talk about being near fire? We can't do that without appealing to the experience. To the, to the empirical, I feel the flame. I hear the crackling. I, I see the color in the fireplace, and I know. So Descartes says, well, maybe all of my experiences are false, that they don't correspond to reality. So on what basis, then, can I build any f- foundation or framework of knowledge, of knowing? Well, my experiences may not correspond to reality, but I know that I'm perceiving something, I'm thinking something, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. And you have a major gestalt shift that begins to take place in the history of ideas as now the individual subject, the thinking self, becomes the center of the universe, So how does this have an impact on biblical studies? Primarily in the figure of Baruch Spinoza, who then goes on to say, and if that is the case, if the single subject myself is the means by which all of reality is adjudicated, how then do I move on in my study of the Bible? Answer, the Bible tells me nothing about the real world. The Bible only helps me understand how to love my neighbor. That's it. In some sense, the birthing of the liberal tradition took place way back there. The Bible tells me about charity, love for my neighbor, but when it comes to metaphysics, when it comes to the being of God, when it comes to how we even know and understand and make sense of the world, the Bible has nothing to do with that. That's the realm of philosophy. That's the realm of our own independent minds. So what's the shift that takes place from this moment here into this moment here? I would like to call it this. The bracketing out of faith in the intellectual exercises of wrestling with the Bible. Faith is bracketed out. Faith is moved to the side. Sometimes, for what seems at least on the surface to be for good reasons. Even someone like John Locke. John Locke was a Christian. Out to prove the reasonableness of Christianity. He was not to dismantle Christianity, he is out to prove the reasonableness of it. And in an effort to do that, Locke said we will displace our belief, we'll just set it to the side, and then on the far end, once we've proven everything, then we'll provide a kind of epistemic or or the- a theory of knowledge upon which we can then be sure that we know. That is an instinct that bracketing out of faith, that putting faith on the shelf at least in principle, that the Pre-critical or the pre-modern tradition would not have known how to deal with that. It would not have made sense to them. And we're going to come back to this in a few minutes when we talk about Irenaeus. But this tradition is working within an Anselmian, Anselm, the great uh, medieval scholar, within an Anselmian understanding of how knowledge works. How does knowledge work? Think about this particular phrase over against Descartes. I think, therefore I am. This is what Anselm says. I believe in order that I might understand. Belief is necessary for us even to be able to begin to understand. That's significant. A significant shift here. We're going to engage the tradition, the the critical tradition, and the, the tradition of Christian Bible reading in this kind of conversation to show the the the. Uh, the Interpretive instincts, the theological instincts that are at play with these, with these early church fathers, Luther, Calvin. And then, for interest's sake, Barth, who is a figure that's located on this side of the timeline. And we'll see how someone in the modern period negotiates this as well. Last quote of introduction. You should be very nervous that we're only here. Uh. Here's a quote from Yaroslav Pelikan. Yersla Pelican says, if the theologians are indeed responsible spokesmen, he's talking here about the church fathers, are indeed responsible spokesmen of the church, one would expect their books to provide most of the information about the development of doctrine. But it is not only to their treatises on systematic theology that we must turn for such information. Even in these treatises, moreover, they acted not only as refuters of heresy, or formulators of dogma, or even defenders of the faith, but as interpreters of scripture. That is a, main po- a major point that I want to come through the lecture tonight. And in a sense, if you walk away with just this, it will have been enough. And that is, if you've ever picked up one of these early church fathers, you might feel, as I have often felt, like you are going to Mars Right. In other words, I don't even know how to put those three sentences together, much less. And we're going to see some of those sentences tonight. I brought them for you. Right. But I don't even know how to put that together, much less sort of make sense of the larger framework of their thought. They're not easy to read. But the main point that I want you to take away from this is we might tend to think that they're abstract, philosophical theologians, hovering somewhere in the netherworld of abstract thinking. That is not how they would have identified their own task. I do not believe that. If Irenaeus, or if Augustine, or if Athanasius, or if Hilary of Poitiers, and the list could go on and on of early church fathers' origin, if they came in here and we said, please tell us primarily, how do you identify what you're trying to do theologically? I believe every one of them to a T would say, I identify myself primarily as a reader and interpreter of the Bible. The history of Christian doctrine, of Christian theology, of Christian dogmatics, really is a history of Christian Bible reading and the wrestling after the Bible. That's a significant point. If Augustine comes in here, and we'll talk about Luther and Calvin later, but especially Luther and Calvin. If they came in there and you said, Calvin, I really liked your institutes. Well, you know what Calvin would say? He'd say, I'm glad you like the institutes. They only meant to serve one purpose, to help you get into the Bible and to spend the rest of your time in the Bible. And then what does Calvin do? For the rest of his life, he spends his time doing Bible commentary. This is a significant matter for, I I think, understanding what's going on in the early church, and that is these were men who were wrestling after the faith, seeking the mind of God in the Bible, in the Bible, all right? Well, that was introduction. (laughs) Now, what I want to do tonight, and I will leave time for questions, because I want us to have a little repartee back and forth, but what I want to do tonight is give you um, three snapshots, that's all it's going to be. Are three snapshots of three figures who might help us get a little bit of an instinct about how these early church fathers went about their task. And here are the three figures that we're going to look at. We'll look at Irenaeus of Lyon, right, Bishop Irenaeus of Lyon. We're talking here about late second century. We'll deal with Cyril of Alexandria, who's in the later fourth century, and we'll deal with Saint Augustine a little bit as well. All right, so Irenaeus. Um, Cyril of Alexandria and and uh, Augustine. And what I've done for you tonight, if you look at your handout, is uh, I, hand, I, handed, I worked on this handout today. I handed it to my wife, who's home with our kids, and I handed it to her before I, I left tonight. And so tell me what you think about this. And you ever get that blank stare like, I don't know, are you going to explain some of this stuff in here? Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little nervous about this. But, but we might not read every one of the quotes. This is here for you to reflect on later. But what I wanted to give you is a taste of what they had to say. I didn't want to just tell you about it. I wanted you to hear Irenaeus. I wanted you to hear Cyril of Alexandria. And I wanted you to hear um, Augustine. All right? So let's do Irenaeus first. And why did I pick Irenaeus? Because Irenaeus is a great entree for us to talk about the rule of faith. Okay, the rule of faith. I'm going to erase here. Here's this longish quote It comes from Irenaeus' book on the apostolic preaching, which I guess I should do a little side commercial real fast. Um, I don't know if you know this series. It's the popular patristic series that's out with St. Vladimir's Press. I think this book was $10 on Amazon. Um, It's an outstanding series. They're doing great work of translating early church fathers and presenting them in a way that's accessible for, for people like you and me. Um, so I commend that to you. This is, this is an excellent treatise on the apostolic preaching. So I'm, I'm quoting from here. And this is what Irenaeus says about the rule of faith. Therefore, lest we suffer any such thing, we must keep the rule of faith unswervingly, And perform the commandments of God, believing in God and fearing him, for he is Lord, and loving him, for he is Father. Now listen to this. Action then comes by faith. As Isaiah says, if you do not believe, you will not understand. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Anselm, doesn't it? If you don't believe, then you're not going to understand. And the truth brings about faith, for faith is established upon things truly real, that we may believe what really is, as it is. And believing what really is, as it is, we may always keep our conviction of it firm. Since then, the conserver of our salvation is faith. It is necessary to take great care of it, that we may have a true comprehension of what it is. I tell my students at Beeson Divinity School, and this is frankly being a little bit naughty, um, but I tell them in various exegesis classes, another big term, which basically means reading and trying to understand the Bible, what it's saying. So in these various exegesis classes, I will tell students, you do realize, don't you, that every heretic had a Bible verse on their side.
1: All
0: right. Or I'll put it to them in a little bit more provocative way exegesis, reading the Bible without the rule of faith, what the fathers called the regula fidei, the rule of faith, or the canon of faith, the canon of faith. Reading and exeguting the Bible without the rule of faith is the first road to heresy. I'll tell them that. I mean, you realize this, right, that these early church Trinitarian debates were Trinitarian debates that were after a certain understanding of the Bible. Arius, that great 4th century heretic who argued that there was a time when Jesus was not, that was his claim, there was a time when Jesus was not, he is higher than we are, but he's lower than the Father, that Arius had a few Bible verses on his side. Namely, a verse like Proverbs 8.22. This is another sort of provocative things I do with my students. If you were to write a paper on the Trinity, and I were to tell you, go write a paper on the Trinity, would you ever turn to Proverbs to try to wrestle with the Trinity? Athanasius did. Arius did. A battle for the Trinity in the early church traded on how one understood Proverbs 8.22, that wisdom was created. For Arius, there's a proof text number one. Of course the sun was created. It says it right in Proverbs 8. And then Basil the Great and Athanasius come along and say, but that's a misunderstanding of that particular text in light of the rule of faith and the mind of the Bible as a whole. So we have a ruled reading that's been given to us within the history of the interpretive tradition. I'll appeal to Irenaeus here again, and I'll tell you what this rule is in a second, or at least give you a little framework of it. But this rule of faith, Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, which is going after the Gnostics and the Marcionites, in his book Against Heresies, Irenaeus comes along and he says, the rule of faith um, is like uh, a mosaic. I mean, You think about this in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Say you wanted to order a mosaic of Caesar Augustus to put into your house. And so you order that from Rome or, for, or maybe from Athens, whatever it is, and the great mosaic maker, the tile maker, puts it together, Then he has to break it apart, and he sends it to you with an instruction manual. And when that instruction manual arrives, you open it up, and you put it together, all these various bits together, so that when you're done making the mural, you have the king on the wall and not a fox or a dog. That was what Irenaeus said. And what happens with someone like Arius or the great Gnostic false interpreters of the Bible, is that they all had their Bible texts, they put them together, and when they put them together, we're meant to have King Jesus on the wall, but what we have is a fox or a dog. It's not a ruled reading. It's not a regular reading. It's very important. And what's significant about this, from what Irenaeus says in this first quote, are two things. Number one, there's a challenge to us and the church to hold fast to the rule of faith, unswervingly, because faith is the means by which we know. And that's the second point, is there's a significant matter of knowledge here. This rule of faith creates for us an ability to know. So then now you're asking, well, what is the rule of faith? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it's the next quote here. Oh, I'm sorry, it's the next one by Iron so We'll go back to Bear in a second. And this is the order of our faith, the foundation of the edifice and the support of our conduct. God the Father, uncreated, uncontainable, invisible, one God, the creator of all. This is the first article of our faith. And the second article, the Word of God. Remember, we're in the second century here. We'll put that in perspective. The Word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was revealed by the prophets according to the character of their prophecy and according to the nature of the economies of the Father, that is, the dispensation of the Father, by whom all things were made, and who in the last times to recapitulate all things, which is a beautiful phrase here, he gathers all things in himself so that all of reality can be understood. It's a significant phrase here. Became a man amongst men, visible and palpable, That's a little kick in the knee of the Gnostics. He really was flesh. There's no Gnostic understanding here. There's no docetism where Jesus sort of hovered off the ground. He wasn't really flesh. No, he was palpable and visible. Why? In order to abolish death, to demonstrate life, to effect communion between God and man. And the third article, the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied, and the patriarchs learnt the things of God and the righteous were led in the path of righteousness and who in the last times was poured out in a new fashion upon the human race renewing man throughout the world to God. End quote. What do you hear there? Three articles. God the Father and then God the Son and then the Holy Spirit. That's the rule. It shows up in different ways. It doesn't have the kind of brittle quality, and I don't mean that term pejoratively, but it doesn't have the brittle quality of the later Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. It doesn't get formalized in that way. It can be stated in multiple ways, but at the end of the day, what the rule of faith is, is a commitment to the Trinitarian character of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, indivisible in his oneness, and three, indivisible in the persons of that God. It's significant here that it's the Trinity that is the rule by which the Bible is put together so that its various parts come together to form the mosaic of the king and not the mosaic of the dog. It's significant. Um, This is the quote from Bear that you have there. Another book, and you, you have all these in the footnotes that if any of this piques your interest, I commend Baer's book to you. It's very accessible and very learned. Baer says, the point of the canon of truth, or the rule of truth, or the rule of faith, as said in different ways, is not so much to give fixed and abstract statements of Christian doctrine. That's important, because that's what the Apostles' Creed does. That's what the Nicene Creed does. That's what Chalcedon does. The importance of the rule of faith is, does not provide a narrative description of Christian belief, the literary hypothesis of Scripture. Rather, the canon of truth expresses the correct hypothesis of Scripture itself, that by which one can see in Scripture the part of a king, Christ, rather than a dog or a fox. It is ultimately the presupposition of the apostolic Christ himself, The one who is according to the scripture, and in reverse, the subject of the scripture throughout, being spoken of by the Spirit, through the prophets, so revealing the one God and Father. That's a lot to take in there, isn't it? But what's at the heart of what Bear is claiming? I think this is significant. The rule of faith did not function as an abstract doctrine of the Bible, Let's put it in our terms. The rule of faith did not function as the gist. I'm like this a little bit. That was a great movie. Well, give me the gist. I don't know what's the gist. Well, here's the gist. Father, Son, Spirit. It's not functioning that way. The rule of faith doesn't function as the gist of the Bible. What the rule of faith does is it provides the proper framework so that now one can go back to do the real task. And what is the real task? The real task is now putting that mosaic together. The real task is now reading the Bible, listening for the word of God. I had, um, I'm had i sure you've had some of these aha moments in your life. Uh, I, I had an aha theological moment. Some of you have heard me say this before. When I was a graduate student at the University of St. Andrews, now we were invited to go to a um, a conference where bigwig theologians, like you know, sign my Bible kind of theologians, were there, and <laughs> and, and, uh, and and this was this, I, t- I kid you not. What what they what they told us as graduate students was you you're welcome to come, but you can't talk, right? So all the bigwigs are sitting around the table. You can sit around the outside and just listen. And uh, John Webster, who teaches at the University of Aberdeen, probably one of the better constructive theologians of our day, I have a lot of time for John Webster, and was giving a paper on the clarity of the Bible. And of course, you know, for Bible scholars who are in the room, it's like, well, what what, what do you mean? I mean, are you working me out of a job here? I mean, if the Bible's so clear, then what, what do I need to do? And so this big-name Bible scholar raises his hand, and he says, uh, John, can you please tell me, then what am I doing as a Bible scholar if the Bible is clear? And by the way, we'll talk about the clarity of Scripture later. But what, what am I doing if the Bible is clear? And it was, was like the air evacuated the room. And Webster looked at him in a very nonpretentious, simple, and I thought rather modest way, said, well, I kind of hope you're doing what every Christian is doing when they open their Bible. And that is you're listening for the word of God. It was like, can I see the exit, please? Right? (laughs) Um, It was. It was one of those. It was the the profundity of that was in its simplicity. That's the function of the rule of faith. Not, let me be very clear here. Not to move us away from the Bible to abstract discussions about Christian theology. The force of the rule of faith is to provide for us a theological framework so that we can go back and continue to live all of life wrestling with the Bible. Christian theology too often makes a beeline away from the Bible to talk about something else. The church fathers would have looked at that in a cross-eyed way. Why? Because where is theology done where do we do the kind of doctrinal thinking in the life of the church to give us a sense of what it means to live life before God and to live life with one another? Where do we do that? In abstract theological systems? No. In the continued and elongated engagement with the Bible itself. I'm going to give you another book plug here. I brought this one. If you're, again, if your interest is peaked and you only have Amazon funds for one book, I would recommend this to you. Sanctified Vision by John J. O'Keefe and Rusty Reno. Those of you who are uh, addicted s- subscribers to First Things might know the name Rusty Reno. He's the new editor of uh, First Things. Um, this is an outstanding introduction to the to um, Patristic Interpretation. I make my students read it at Beeson. Um, it's, a, it's an outstanding book, and they talk about those matters in there. So, to wrap up here on the rule of faith, and then we'll press on. What we learn from the rule of faith is that the rule of faith is both constraining and unleashing at the same time. How does it constrain? It constrains because if your reading of particular text runs contrary to the claims that are given to us in this doctrinal formulation, then you have run counter to the character of who God is. Think about the language of Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus. And he is before all things. That is a significant matter for the way in which we interpret the Bible. Matter of fact, it changes the whole game. Do you believe that Jesus, who is now fully God, fully man, that the Logos, who in time became flesh, preceded the Old Testament and preceded even its composition? This is where Robert Jensen, American theologian, said it, and I think in a rather provocative way, but in the right way. Why do you think the Pharisees were so befuddled by the fact that Jesus taught the Old Testament with such authority? How can he teach with such authority like this? And what was the answer that Jensen gave? Well, because on the first level, he was the author. <laughs> it's like, wow, he was the author. It didn't come as a surprise to him. He understood the imperatival force, the charismatic, preaching, spiritual force of the Old Testament. Why? Because he was its author. And if we believe that that's the case, if we believe that God's triune character precedes even our understanding of it in time and space, that he is triune from eternity past, then this is a significant matter when it comes to who we're talking about when we talk about God. I get nervous, by the way, when people start talking about God. I don't know if you do. God this, God that. I'm like, okay, at some point, someone, please, very quickly, bring the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into this conversation, or I don't know who we're talking about anymore. It's very important that when we start talking about God, we recognize that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one, and his name is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Significant. Changes the way in which we interpret. So it's constraining. If it reigns against that, then it's problematic. But it's also unleashing. Why is it unleashing? Because now it allows the whole of the Bible to come together in this mosaic that on its own we might not have seen this. It allows us to see a kind of interpretive depth to the Bible that on first glance we might not have understood. Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians 3 as the veil that's over our hearts that now in Christ has been lifted. It's Jesus sitting with the disciples after the road to Emmaus and opening up the law, the prophets, and the Psalms and explaining himself from beginning to the end there, which I hope to see someday on instant replay in heaven, if they have that. <laughs> Bible study with Jesus. It's got to be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've, I've knocked the juice out of that one. Next part here. Cyril of Alexandria and figural reading. I'll just take a few seconds on this and then get to our last point a few seconds. I, I'm in the middle of a class at, at Beeson Divinity School with um, several students. One, one of them is here. Jay, where are you? Where, 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 okay. There you are. Um, Jay, Jay's in this class with me at Beeson. And uh, we've been we've been wrestling with the history of biblical interpretation. I've been forcing these poor students to read a lot of primary sources. And and in the first part of our semester, we read um, Theodore of Mopsuestia on, on the minor prophets. How's that for fun? And then Cyril of Alexandria, and try to read them side by side. And I actually found Cyril of Alexandria the great defender of what we'll call single-subject Christology. Chalcedon, fully God, fully man, and one person. Jesus is one person, not a schizoid. He's one person who's fully God, fully man. Single subject, two natures. Very, very important. Well, Cyril was the great theologian behind this, and uh, his commentary on Jonah is rich. But I wanted to read this to you. Because you're here thinking about, okay, if that's true, if the whole of the Bible has a Trinitarian framework, and if the subject matter of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is, both of them, God's revelation of himself by the Spirit in Jesus, if that's the truth about the Old and the New Testament, then how do we go about doing that? I'm a little nervous about that. How do we go about doing that without... Betraying the text itself—that's a, a legitimate question. Listen to what Cyril says. I don't know if this is going to help you, but I thought it was interesting. When it, this is from his, his preface to Jonah, when a text is developed at a spiritual level, and its central character is selected and adopted as a representation of Christ, the Savior of us all, a person of wisdom and understanding should judge which details are irrelevant to the purpose in question, and which in turn are relevant and applicable and likely to be of particular benefit to the listeners. If we do not apply the whole story to the purpose of spiritual interpretation, then let no one find fault. Just as bees, what a beautiful phrase, just as bees in traversing meadows and flowers always gather what is useful for making honey, So the skillful commentator studies the holy and inspired scripture, ever gathering and compiling what contributes to the mysteries of Christ and will produce a mature and irreproachable treatment. Wow. You know what Cyril is saying here? I'll put it down in sort of brass tacks for for me and for you. You know what he's saying? He's saying figural, spiritual, spiritual theological reading of the Bible, which is something that I feel very strongly about. Basically, it's where preaching and Bible study kiss, right? And our preachers are doing this all the time in the pulpits. They're wrestling with what does the Bible say and how does that Bible now speak into the current moment? That's what preachers are wrestling with. That when they kiss with one another, that it's not always self-evident how to make that kind of move. It takes wisdom. It takes skill it takes practice, right? Practice. I think that's good news for you and for me. Why do I think that's good news? I think it's good news because it tells us that we're on a long journey together. A long journey of learning to read the Bible as a Christian witness from, the, from Genesis to the maps, as one of my colleagues says, right? The whole of the Bible has its witness to Jesus Christ. And it takes time to learn where it extends naturally in that conversation and where it does not. Think about with Jonah. And uh, We know that Jesus himself talked about the sign of Jonah now being fulfilled in me. So what do we talk about with Jonah? Where does it extend into this conversation with Jesus of Nazareth? Does it extend when he's fleeing to Tarshish? Probably not. Does it extend to when he's throwing a temper tantrum in chapter 4? Probably not there either. But in other places there is a natural extension and it takes wisdom to wrestle with that. Do I have a quote by Reno in there as well? All right, this and then we'll move on. For the church fathers, the unity of the Bible and the basic commonality of the diverse details of their exegesis or their reading came from the conviction that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So how is it now that I can go back to the Old Testament with Moses? and with Abraham, and with David, and with Isaiah, and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and Malachi, and not just one, this is maybe me being a little naughty here, not just one or two Psalms here or there, but the whole of the Psalter, as the living voice of Christ for his people. How do I do that, and why do I do that? What provides warrant for that? What provides the warrant for it is the confession and the belief that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Law and the Prophets. And that doesn't mean that, this is my way of phrasing it, that doesn't mean that we try to go and find Jesus under rocks and trees. right? He's there, right? He's there, right? It's not that kind of thing. What it is is a sensitivity, beginning to develop a theological sensitivity to the whole of the Bible having its ultimate subject matter in Jesus. I'll give you an example of this, just one. Think about... This strange phrase in Matthew, where it quotes Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And it says, and when Jesus went down to Egypt. Do you remember this story, right? Joseph gets a dream, goes down to Egypt. And then it says, when Jesus went down to Egypt, it fulfilled that prophecy. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now, where does this get tricky? It gets tricky because when i go to hosea 11:1 and i read hosea 11:1 i realize uh-oh that's not a prophecy that's a description of something that happened in the past it's a reference to what to the exodus so what's going on here how can matthew say that this is now fulfilled answer i think at least as I sort of make baby steps toward this answer because matthew understands the whole of Israel's history, Israel's election, Israel's exodus, Israel's call to be something, Israel's failure and rejection, all of it, to find its fulfillment, its overflowing reality in the person and work of Jesus. And you see that, don't you? Where Jesus then goes up on a mountain, right, and he starts giving what? An understanding of the law, the Sermon on the Mount. We see it, don't we, when Jesus is immediately thrust out into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness for how many days? 40. forty days and forty nights. He's out there being tempted by who? By the devil. And he comes out victorious. Whereas Israel, they were out in the wilderness for forty years. It didn't go so well. Right? But he comes out victorious. Is he just doing that to do it? No. Jesus is acting on this grand, redemptive stage, being, incarnating Israel, both for Israel and for the whole of the world. That's the beginning of a way in which you begin to see it's not just little texts here and there that witness to Jesus, but the whole of the Old Testament canon. right? Third one. We're almost done. Third one. St. Augustine. Oh, my. Um, another book recommendation to you here. All of my quotes tonight will come from the New City Press Translation of On Christian Doctrine, um, which or teaching Christianity, which is a translation of De Doctrina Christiana, um, I commend this to you. It is rich. It's basically um, sitting with Saint Augustine and, and letting Saint Augustine teach you how to read the Bible. That's what he's doing, and, it, and it's 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 profound and it will be surprising. You'll read some of it, you'll go, goodness. I don't know if that's the move that I would have made, but um, go at it. So this section is called Augustine, the Scriptures, and the piety of reading. Do three things, and then we'll. Stop for questions. Number one, listen to this quote that Augustine gives to the gravity of the task of reading the Bible. But those who read them, that is the scriptures, in a light-minded spirit, are liable to be misled by innumerable obscurities and ambiguities. And let's be honest, we can all say amen, right? I mean, come on. You commit to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible through this year. I get through Genesis. I made it. I get through Exodus. That's pretty good. I get through Leviticus. Done. Right? <laughs> done. It's hard. And to mistake the meaning entirely, while in some places they cannot even guess at a wrong meaning, so dense and dark is the fog that some passages are wrapped in. Well, thanks a lot, Augustine. This is all due, I have no doubt at all, to divine providence. In order to break in pride with hard labor, and to save the intelligence from boredom, since it readily forms a low opinion of things that are too easy to work out. So, go get them boys and girls, I think is what Augustine's saying, right? It's a hard task. And and I think what, what Augustine is saying is similar to what John Owen said at the beginning of his classic work entitled The Death of Death of the Death of Christ. How's that for a title? Where Owen says, um, "Dear reader, I warn you. Right? If you're coming into this book to try to find entertainment in the theater like Cato did at going to the theater, you've had your entertainment farewell. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, this is a hard task. There's a beware sign." on the front of the doorpost of entering into Bible study. And Augustine warns us about that. We can't go into it light-mindedly. We can't go into it haphazardly. We go into it with a gravity, a sense of gravitas. Why? Because we know what this thing is. These are the very words of life. This is what the prophet Amos said in Amos 7. You can do a famine of bread and water if you have to, but by no means let there be a famine of your word. Don't do that. Famine of of bread and water, okay. But a famine of your word, don't do that. And this is what Augustine is saying. This is a significant and and a serious task not to be entered into lightheartedly or feeble-mindedly. Look what he says in the second part here, the clarity of Scripture. And he's going to soften here a little bit. (laughs) Magnificent and salutary, therefore, is the way the Holy Spirit has so adjusted the Holy Scriptures That they ward off starvation with the clearer passages, while driving away boredom with the obscurer ones. There is almost nothing in fact that can be extracted from their obscurities, which cannot be found plainly said somewhere else. That's great, isn't it? It's like, thank you, right? So you get into these Bible studies. I, I found this to be the case for some of you who are at Advent Um, You know, we finished over the past five weeks or so a study in the book of Galatians. And it's one thing, that study was good for me because it reminded me. It's one thing to kind of wrestle with the Bible to find the nuggets that we want. I mean, I call that a Marxist approach to reading the Bible, right? (laughs) And we want to get our little nuggets. So you go in, you're like, okay, I don't know what any of all that means, but I know what that means and that's enough. I'll go talk on that for 30 minutes, okay? That's fine, It's fine. Um, but it's another thing to kind of get in there and then to begin to wrestle with, well, why does that verse follow that verse? And then he says that in the next chapter, and you're like, oh my goodness, I thought I understood Galatians at one point. And now I realize that it's like like sand that's going through the hands. I mean, there's a beautiful phrase here from Augustine that says, listen, that's in the divine plan of God. It's to challenge us, to guard us, What number one, from pride, To keep us humble, to keep us coming back to the task, but also to recognize that in those difficult places, you can find the truth that's expressed there in the difficult places and another place that's clearer. It's also why Augustine, and this would drive some folks nuts, might drive you nuts, but this is also why Augustine says, okay... So say you're preaching on a text, he says this in De Doctrina, I would never tell my students this, Jay, don't tell anybody, Um, but let's say you're preaching on a text, and what you say in the sermon really doesn't have anything to do with the text. Augustine says, well, I don't really like that, but as long as it's somewhere else in the Bible." I guess it'll be okay, right? (laughs) Now, what's Augustine's point? Augustine's point is that the whole of the Bible has within it the truths that we need for life and for practice. And this is what we get at when we're talking about the clarity of the Bible. We'll talk about this with Calvin later. But what does it mean when we say the Bible is clear? Do we mean that it's equally clear? No. You've read enough of it to know that it's not the truth. But it's clear enough for us to know what we need to believe and to know what we need to do. Remember what Mark Twain said? What a great phrase from Twain. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts that I do. Right? Those are the parts that bother me. Last thing here. Fear, piety, knowledge, and love. If you were to pull off Thomas Cranmer's, um, you know, there were four hump, Five homilies I think that Thomas Cranmer wrote during the the reign of Edward the Edwardsian homilies are what they're called he wrote the first one I believe on justification he wrote the second one on reading the Bible and how to read the Bible and if you read Thomas Cranmer and his understanding of how to read the Bible well and faithfully it comes right out of this Augustine playbook almost word for word so what I'm about to read right here has a long tradition in in the Anglican tradition as well what is needed above all else I mean, you think about this. If I were to ask you, I should have given you a quiz. If I were to ask you and say, you tell me, well, what's, what's the most important thing needed to be a good interpreter of the Bible? I mean, I think, what, what would our answer be? Maybe a little Greek, a little Hebrew, uh, Bible background commentary. Um, you know, you've know, you been getting a list of all the things that you want for Christmas. And all of those things are great. I'm, I, I, I'm, I make my living doing that stuff. Right? So I, I believe in it. But it's not what, how Augustine would lead when he's talking about what makes a good interpreter and reader of the Bible. Listen to this. What is needed above all else, therefore, is to be converted by the fear of God. I'm fearful at first. And I'm converted from that to now wishing to know his will, what he bids us seek and shun. Now this fear of necessity shakes us with thoughts of our mortality and of our death to come. And so to say nails our flesh and fixes all the stirrings of pride to the wood of the cross. What a great phrase. What is needed next, then, is to grow modest with piety. And what does he mean by piety? Because some of you hear the word piety you get a little bit nervous, a little too uh, syrupy and sentimental, where every sentence has to be ended with praise the Lord or something like that. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about here. What is needed next is to grow with modest with piety. And what is piety, Augustine? Not to contradict the divine scriptures, whether we have understood it when it lashes our vices or whether we have not understood it, as though we could have better ideas and make better rules for ourselves. So if Augustine comes in here, and says, Augustine, what does it mean to be a pious person? What does it mean to read the Bible piously? His answer would be, this is what a pious reader is. A pious reader is someone who says, I'm not sure everything I'm going to find in there, but whatever I do find, I'm going to submit to it. And I'm going to say that that has the authority over me even over against my own reason and rationality, that's at the core of biblical authority in the life of the church. And you know, and I'm stealing from Karl Barth, and we'll talk about him again. But this is where Karl Barth said, "No authority of the Bible in the church, no authority of Jesus. You don't get the one without the other." And this is what Augustine's saying. That is within the great tradition of, of Christian doctrine. I'll submit to it, and I would not, and, and then as though we could have better ideas and make better rules for ourselves. Instead, we should rather think and believe that what is written there is better and truer, even if its meaning is hidden, than any good ideas we can think up for ourselves. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, let's just think, let's let that sit on you for a second. I mean, do, you really believe, do I really believe that? When I think about all the great Christian books out there, I mean, Augustine, for example, all the great Christian thinkers, all the great how-to books, all the Bible studies that you've done. who You name your favorite preacher, whoever it is. And here is Augustine saying that the Bible is better than all of it. It's better than all of it. That's a powerful phrase. After these two stages of fear and piety, we come to the third stage, which is knowledge. So I fe- I'm fearful that I move to a place of submitting to what God claims here. And then that leads to knowledge, which I have undertaken to deal with here now. Because it is with this stage that every serious student of the scripture has to occupy himself or herself. And he is not going to find anything else in them but that God is to be loved on God's account. And one's neighbor on God's account. To love God indeed with one's whole heart, with one's whole soul, with one's whole mind. But one's neighbor as oneself, that is to say that one must refer all the love of one's neighbor as of oneself to God. Next quote, and then we'll stop. So if it seems to you that you have understood the divine scriptures, how's this for a challenge? Or any part of them in such a way that by this understanding you do not do not build up this twin love of God and neighbor, then you really have not yet understood them." Isn't that interesting? I mean, this is where I think, again, if Augustine were to come in here, and by the way, this is another place where we probably need our liturgy, which we would now say, Lord have mercy, right? Um, but but if, if Augustine were to come in here and we were to say, Augustine, what do you think about all these Bible studies that are going on in Birmingham? I mean, there's a Bible study, I mean, uh, when I lived in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, Denny's was right around the corner. I mean, we called that like the house of prayer. I mean, there's more Bible study, more prayer going on in Denny's during the week. I mean, this is a Bible study. We live in the, in the belt of the buckle of the Bible belt. I always say that. And what, what would Augustine say to that? Augustine would say, well, that's great. I mean, of course we're, we're seeking after God's own heart. But then he would quickly follow that by saying, but you do realize, don't you, that Bible study is not an end. Bible study is a means to an end. Building up love of God, a recognition of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus that then forces us in freedom outside of ourselves to love our neighbors. Loving God and, and loving our neighbor. That's the goal of, of Bible study. Well, oh, you've been patient. It's late. So do you want to ask some questions that went longer than I expected? I wanted to go 40 minutes and look what we've done. just like to say is we'll be... Anticipate a little more what to expect next week. We'll be a little more prepared in terms of the air conditioning and see the handouts. And I'm hot. I don't know if you yeah, are. So uh, I apologize for not being completely ready. I'm the, I'm really happy to see to turn out, but we'll be more prepared next week. Come Beth. Yes, sir. Well, this is a stupid question. If Jesus was around for the whole Bible, why do you go from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek? That's, that's one of those simplistic things that I've always been a problem with, me. Inconsistence he's the driving force behind the theology there. It seems like such a yeah. discrepancy. Yeah, yeah. I think this is, and I, I, let's ho- I'm going to hold that question a little bit for Calvin. Because I think Calvin will help us negotiate that particular question. Because even though Jesus, or let's just say the triune revelation of God in Jesus is the subject matter of both the Old and the New Testaments, there are still two different administrations of that covenant. And that's a significant matter because there is a strong amount of continuity between the Old and the New Testament, but there's significant discontinuity as well. And that takes a certain kind of um, interpretive sensitivity as well. So uh, not to just sort of save that off, but let's hold that because I think Calvin will really help us negotiate that particular problem. And and it's a live one. Yes, ma'am. Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know for Augustine. I mean, and I encourage my students. I, I teach the biblical languages at, uh, well, one of the languages at, at Beeson. Um, and I encourage my students. You know, we have at the, how many of you have seen the dome at Beeson Divinity School? It's It's got 16 major figures from the history of the church. Augustine's up in this dome. Augustine didn't know Greek or Hebrew. I tell my students, you've got to work hard, but just remember, there's a few people in the Dome who didn't know any of this, right? And, and none of you are going to be in the Dome, right? I mean, I'm not either. Um, so I don't, I don't really, I'd have to do some spade work on Augustine to know how he's understanding the Latin here of fear. But I think from an Old Testament standpoint, though I might nuance this with my children, the way I talk about fear, I do think fear has both components in it. Both fear reverence and awe and real life knee-knocking fear. Like Uzzah just touched that Ark of the Covenant and now he's dead. I mean, it was like, that's scary, right? I mean, so like real scary stuff. So, I, I mean, even though I've always say to my children, you know, that we're talking about reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but um, I think as we begin to start cutting the steak a little bit more and moving away from the milk, we realize, well, fear has both components within it. Now whether or not that's in Augustine's mind, I'd have to do some spade work on that. i, just wanted, I, thought, I heard that the Greek translation was all fear. The Greek translation? Yeah, it's, yeah, and Augustine wouldn't know. I mean, see, he wasn't he wasn't working with Greek. Yeah. Isaiah's response is pretty clear. Yeah, that's right. That was knee knocking fear. I'm dead. And that tends to be the response of people who have these encounters with God. You know, it's um and, and by the way, that's not just Old Testament. What happens to John on Patmos, right? He's like felt it's like that's Jesus, and now I'm on the ground like I'm dead. Yeah. Yes, sir. Do you understand the Bible better today like the and the early fathers, or is it, you reach That is a great question, Jim. I, and it's a question that has occupied my mind this week. It's interesting that you asked that. <laughs> oh, you want to hear the question? Um He asked, do we understand the Bible better today than Irenaeus? Is that what you're saying? And and, and is this an ongoing thing? I mean, the answer to the latter part of that is, yes, it is an ongoing thing. And for all of my, remember my little history of the Western world there, uh, pre-modern and modern. I mean, for all of my concern about what I might call the methodological atheism, borrowing that from, um, from Brian Daly, of the modern period, there have been great strides. In, the, in, the, in scholarly understanding of the Bible that can aid a Christian theological interpretation of the Bible. They don't need to be viewed in opposition one to the other, namely in areas of the understanding of Hebrew. I mean, I've, I've, we're just finished reading, uh, my class and I, I've just finished reading Martin Luther's commentary on Micah. We read the whole thing. And, uh, and Luther has an amazing knowledge of Hebrew, reading it right off the, doing his own exegesis right off the surface of the text, of the Hebrew language, but he makes phil- he he makes statements about the Hebrew language that are just wrong. I mean, just, it's, it's not right. Um, we, we, we're advanced on some of these things, and that aids. So I think the answer to that is yes and no. I think yes on some of the nuts and bolts matters of the Bible. We've we we've we've made a lot of advances, but no on the level of its substance. I mean, I don't know if any of you have experienced this before, but I remember getting out of Bible college. I had my first opportunity to preach. I'd done some Greek, you know, I'd done Greek. I pulled my commentaries out, and I realized I don't know how to say boo about the text other than describing it. The text, he says this, and then he says that, and faith means this, and that means that. But there was no, thus saith the Lord. I didn't know how to do that. Um, and none of the commentaries that I went to, even big-name commentators who do all the nuts-and-bolts stuff and help me with all of that, help me get to any of that. But, boy, you go reading Calvin and Luther, Augustine, when it comes to the subject matter of the Bible, the thus saith the Lord part of it, they have an enduring witness to my mind over against some of our very flat-footed readings of the Bible, as sophisticated as some of it is. So I think the answer to that is yes and no.
1: I'm I'm coming from the feeble-minded approach
0: here. Yes, me too.
1: That, I like this phrase: "If you do not believe, you will not understand." In that, you know there are lots of feeble-minded people, and we're we're okay as long as we believe, right? We don't have to build a better Christian. We can't build a better Christian, right? We can never build. You know, our Christian doesn't get any better because in us. Is that right? I mean, I love coming to these Bible studies and I love drilling down into all this stuff. But what about the man on the street? What about the, the, fee- the feeble, truly, I mean, you're like the physically, truly feeble-minded. I mean, they're, they have maybe far greater treasures built up in heaven than...
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, there's a... Um, I mean, um, well, I think about this in relation to my mother... Right. I mean, she's not. Um, I mean, my, my mother has, you know, got her GED when she was 28 years old. Uh, you know, she dropped out of high school, never went to college. Um, she, her mind is sharp, but she, she has no formal Bible training at all. But my mother reads her Bible every night. I tease her all the time. You read your Bible way more than I read my Bible. I mean, she just reads her Bible every night. And um, I think Augustine would say one needs to be slow to discount the wisdom that comes from a long life of following after the Lord and reading his word. It's the classic sort of blue-haired lady in the pew stuff. I mean, where you go, goodness, I never thought about the text that way. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, right? And this is where I still believe very much in the teaching office of the church. We have teachers that God has set apart to help guide us. But I think a teacher would not do well if he didn't have or she didn't have the modesty and the humility to say, I I, have, I need to listen, I need to listen to that. Um, because you never know what the Holy Spirit's work is in people's hearts and minds, and there may be insights on that text, given their experience, or multiple other issues that you, that you just haven't had and won't have. And that's significant, I think. That's why we interpret in community. We, we need, you realize this, we need each other to read. We need to read the Bible together. It's very important. Yeah. David, you'll be, it. okay, and then and you'll be last. Along those same lines, our desire to study is by grace, our faith is by grace, and our understanding is through revelation. So all we can really do is have mercy on me for my sinful approach to the Bible. Yeah. I mean, this is where, and again, I'm going to say that for the reformers again. Because this is where I think Luther and Calvin would come in and say, yes, but learn Hebrew. Work at great. In other words, do, the, do everything you can to understand the physical reality of that text, but also know that you can never make it happen. Like with all the skills that you might have. I do this with my students. I mean, I'm working hard for you all, and we're working together so that you can read this Bible in the original language. What a lot of hard work you're doing. But at the end of the day, when it comes to preaching, teaching, Bible study, read, you can never on your own, by your own skills, make it happen. God's got to show up. It's his work. And that, that's very important. Calvin and Luther got that. They knew that. Okay, you and yes sir. If you transport yourself mentally back to Old Testament times and think of all the blood and gore and cruelty that you find in the Old Testament, is it right or wrong in your thought and other people's thought to think that it was written in that way to match the culture and understanding of the people of that time. Yeah, I mean that's a good question, and I think it it tacks into the fact that, well, frankly, what parts of the Bible are cultural? We, we don't we don't believe in the Bible like like uh, Islam believes the Quran, that it sort of fell out of heaven. I mean, we really believe that the Bible was produced in a long period of time by real men and women. Um, by the way, women is an interesting thing there, but there, that's another discussion. Um, but but that, that but that's going on there, um, and that they that they don't transcend their humanity in the writing of their Bible. So what parts of the Bible are cultural? All of it. I mean, all of it is. Um, how one deals with that, I think, requires some some careful thought. But that, but I think the point you make is is a good one. Okay, so next week uh, Luther. I'll close them in
1: prayer
0: alright let me close this in prayer and then we'll so Father thank you for allowing us to have this time together tonight and, and Lord we, we just scratched the surface and I, I pray that you will whet our appetites Lord to be lifelong students of your word and Lord in the hopes and the belief that in a hundred years from now if you tarry or 200 years from now, or 1,000 years from now, if you tarry, that there will still be men and women who are hungering to hear from you, who are seeking to find your truth, your revelation, and the words that you've given us in the Bible. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.